Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We're the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs. Come at you every Tuesday evening at 5 o'clock from here in Los Angeles. This program is all about helping entrepreneurs and, in fact, everybody in business to become more successful. We've been bringing you loads of information, great advice, and fantastic interviews now for four years to help you maximize your own success, and uh, we've just signed a contract for another year. So we're really pleased about that. Now, we all know that Jack Ma, who's the executive chairman of the Alibaba Group, is one of the most successful entrepreneurs in the world. Everybody knows that. It's a bit like Geico. Everyone knows that. But did you know that his e-commerce company, Alibaba, attracts 100 million shoppers a day. Ma is worth an estimated lousy 20 billion. But before he was the richest man in China, he went through a whole bunch of rejection. Firstly, he failed his college entrance exam three times. Now, you know, once is bad luck, twice is you know, shows you didn't work hard enough and three times just plain bloody stupid. But he failed his college entrance exam three times. So he applied for 30 different jobs. He got rejected for all of them. <laughs> oh, there's hope for all of us. So he went for a job with the police. They rejected him. He went for a job at KFC with 24 other people. So 24 of them applied for a job. 23 of them were accepted. Ma was the only guy rejected. You'd start to see a pattern happening here, wouldn't you? Three times apply to college, three times I get rejected, apply for 30 jobs, get rejected, go to the police, get re- You know, I thought any idiot could get a job with the police. You get rejected. So then he went ahead. The only thing he could do was start his own business. So he founded Alibaba in 1998. And there he met with more obstacles. The brand didn't turn a profit for three years and he had to get creative. And one of the company's main challenges was that it had absolutely no way to do payments and banks wouldn't deal with him, like most banks. If you don't have enough money to pay off the debt 500 times, then they won't lend you any money. So... Ma decided to start his own payment program called Alipay. So this program transfers payments of different currencies between international buyers and sellers. When he announced Apple Pay, everybody said to him, that is the stupidest idea you have ever had. That is dumb ass. Well, today, over 800 million people use Alipay. So... Plenty of failures before he got to that one big, and I mean big, success. 
Now, I've always believed that entrepreneurs are born. You know, you're not bred. They're born. They pop out of the womb and they go, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I don't want to be controlled by people. I don't want any of that. I want to do my own thing. I think I can add to the world, so I'm going to be an entrepreneur. Now, a lot of um, businesses, I guess, are started by people because they lost their job or some other reason, but not because they had a burning desire to be an entrepreneur. And we know that about 95% of all startups fail, and I'd be prepared to bet that those businesses that are run by born entrepreneurs are much more likely to succeed than those businesses that aren't. Well, now scientists have discovered a personality difference between entrepreneurs and people who end up being employees. Now, you know, there's a lot of entrepreneurs around. In America, 13% of all Americans are running their own businesses. So 13% of all Americans are running their own businesses. Now, that's much higher than Australia or England or any other country. The opportunities here are much greater, I must admit. So 13% run their own businesses. 87% are employees. So finally, we think we found the difference between the two types. According to a newly released Swiss-German study, while an, while an employee is a specialist, an entrepreneur is usually a jack of all trades. Entrepreneurs must be you know, sufficiently skilled in a whole range of skills to try and run a business. You know, you've got to, be, you've got to develop your product, you've got to be an accountant, you've got to be an administrator, you've got to be an HR person, you've, you've got to do everything. On the other hand, employees are specialists who works for others, who work for others, and whose talents are combined with those of other employees. So they don't do things on their own; they um, need a bunch of people around them. And the analysis showed that people with a broader portfolio of experience were much more likely to be entrepreneurs. Those who were not predisposed to be an entrepreneur, i.e., they became employees, required job emotional or income security. I guess the one thing about being an entrepreneur is you never know when your next buck's coming from and you don't know whether what you're starting is going to work. You don't know whether it's going to leave you in a great deep hole. Um, and a lot of people are just not born to be able to do that. Now, Stanford University economist Edward P. Lazier found that students who take a broad range of classes and a wider range of jobs are much more likely to be entrepreneurs. The research showed that entrepreneurs don't just have a diverse set of skills, but they also have a very diverse network of relationships. You know, friends and parents and business contacts that they can call on when launching a business. Findings in network science show that having such a diverse social network is hugely beneficial at a creative level as well, since more perspectives you're exposed to, the more refined your ideas become. So it's a double diversity that leads to entrepreneurship. Lots of experience, lots of contacts. So people who are social butterflies, you know, titter around and 
meet millions of people but don't actually ever enter any meaningful dialogue with anyone. Or computer nerds are very unlikely to be entrepreneurs because they're both too imbalanced and therefore they're less likely to be successful. Steve Jobs used to say that creative people have a more diverse bag of experiences than anyone else. In a speech in 1982, Jobs said, if you're going to make connections which are innovative, you don't have the same bag of experiences that everyone else has. So there you go. Entrepreneurs are born. They're not made. So all of your... All of you entrepreneurs out there, congratulations. You were born to rock. You're probably born to go broke a couple of times too, but think of all the fun you have on the way through. Now, speaking of entrepreneurs, we just heard a second ago how Jack Ma failed his entrance exam three times and couldn't get a job at Kentucky Fried Chicken. And judging by the look of him, you know, he, he weigh about... 80 pounds ringing wet. I don't think he's eaten too much Kentucky Fried Chicken. He is skinny, that boy. But I want to tell you about a, what I think is a great story about four young college dropouts who have built a $14 million company in 13 months. I was just sitting there trying to work out how long it was, but 13 months to build a $14 million company. So since September, last September, just a few months ago, an app called Wigo, which is the brainchild of 23-year-old college dropout, another college dropout, <laughs> Ben Kaplan. This is becoming a trend. Um, Wigo has become the hottest thing on college campuses. Wigo hopes college, helps college kids find out where their friends are going to meet up and party or meet up and study or just meet up and do anything. But the thing that's making the kids go wild for this app is they can't just download it and use it. They were very smart. They have to really, 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 really want it. So they've got to get hundreds and thousands of their um, schoolmates to sign up on a waiting list. Only when you've got all this well of people wanting to use it will we go unlock the app at their school. So we go similar to Yik Yak. I suppose, in that college students love using it. It's the kind of, I don't know, LinkedIn for colleges, I suppose. It takes the network effect. Wigo even has school ambassadors, college kids that wrangle others to sign up for the app until the school hits the magic number to be unlocked, which is not in, which is pretty formidable. It's it's around 5% of the school's, um, total population, so it can be a lot, of, a lot of people. So making college kids wait turned out to be pure genius. The app's been available only since September, which is September, October, November, December, January, February. It's about six months, and it's been downloaded and requested at 1,200 campuses. It's in use at 73 schools and has over 100,000 active users, and they've just ranged raised their first major round of venture funding, landing $1.4 million at a valuation of $14 million. And this has all happened despite the fact that the app's got absolutely no revenue. It doesn't even have a business model yet. 
So I guess at some point the team will have to work on that and, uh, you know, maybe discounts and services from local businesses who want um, to get to um, college students. But um, from idea to drop out entrepreneur, that's pretty cool. Now, Ben came up with the idea just two years ago when he was a freshman at a small school outside of Boston. He noticed that his friends spent a huge amount of time making party plans. So, And all these friends were all asking the same questions. Every Thursday, every Friday, every Saturday. Who's having a party? Where are we going to go? What's happened? Where can we meet up? It was an avalanche of frantic text messages as everybody tried to find somewhere to go. Which bar are we going to? So he built an app called Who Is Going Out, which is W-I-G-O, which is where we go come from. The only problem was he was not a programmer, so he spent the summer designing the app and then borrowed money from his parents and hired a programmer. He launched it at his own school, and within three weeks, half the school was using the app. That was a year ago. He got a story in the local papers, and that led various people in the tech industry to reach out to him and offer advice. One of them worked for Kayak and introduced him to Paul English, who had just launched a new accelerator program. So Paul had built Kayak into a $2 billion company, and he told Kaplan that he saw huge potential in Wigo. So he dropped out of college and entered the accelerator. English introduced him to his co-founder, Giuliano Giacaglia, I think, who at 21 had graduated from MIT with a master's in artificial intelligence and robotics. Giuliano had already turned down jobs at Facebook and Microsoft. So he had a few clues about him, this guy. So once in the program... We go quickly raised about $500,000 in seed money and then something weird happened. College kids were all calling Wigo begging for the app. One of them, a 19-year-old, Tyler Schwartz, a freshman at the University of Maryland, saw the app. He reached out to Kaplan and Kaplan explained the network effect. Schwartz became an ambassador for the app. He got his frat brothers and their friends to download it. And then within 24 hours, the app had hundreds of downloads and unlocked the school. We had so many people at the school talking about the app that Schwartz said that they called him the Wigo Kid. Kaplan made Schwartz an intern and watched him bring in another 1,500 users in seven weeks and helped him find ambassadors at other schools. So it was when he was offered a job, full-time job at Wigo, Schwartz, guess what? Dropped out of school. Another one to become the company's director of business development. It was a similar story for Claire Yuha, who also dropped out of the University of Maryland to join the app. All these people dropped out of college and all becoming multimillionaires. Mm. The company now employs five people ranging from 19 to 22 or 23, and they all dropped out of college to work there. And it is a growing network of ambassadors. 12 months later, we goes on 1,200 campuses at 73 schools 
and 100,000 active users. Way to go, team. What a great story. More college dropouts have made it big as entrepreneurs. It's really interesting that the majority of entrepreneurs that are successful don't finish college. Maybe that's another indicator as to whether you're born to be an entrepreneur or an employee. Maybe it's another. I was talking about this to um, my guest next week. Um, we're talking about education and uh, you know, more reason why we all should be listening to Sir Ken Robertson. And incidentally, if you get a chance to catch Sir Ken Robertson, he talks about education in America, not only in America, but across the world. If you get a chance to listen to him, if he's on in your town or anywhere near you anywhere soon, make sure you go. He makes a hell of a lot of sense. He points out why our education system that we have in this country and in other first world countries is absolutely fucked. It does not work. We need to change it. The sooner the better. And the fact that the most successful companies around are being run by college dropouts gives you a bit of a clue. Now, you're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show from Los Angeles on Voice America Business. Our sole reason for being here is to insist entrepreneurs to become successful. My wife would say it's because I like to listen to myself talk, but that's not true, I assure you. So, if you've got a question about any aspect of business, don't hesitate to email me at at bobpritchard.com and we'll answer you on air or we'll email you directly. Make sure you subscribe to my monthly newsletter, which, as we speak, about four weeks late, but I apologise for that, is sent out to about 16,000 businesses and business executives in over 60 countries, and it's going out right now. So if you want to get it, get onto the website and uh, enrol. You're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business, and I'll be back after this break with my guest, William Guy, who is CEO of Cornerstone Leadership Solutions. He's a great guy, and he's served as a consultant to boards of directors and senior management of many of the world's largest organizations. And one of the things I really like about him is that um, he's also an active philanthropist and a great guy. Excuse the pun. Get it? Uh, William Guy? Great guy? Okay. This is Bob Pritchard, live from Los Angeles, and I'll be back with you in just a minute. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com.
You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show and the segment of the show where we interview people who have achieved great success and who can assist entrepreneurs and help everybody in business to become more successful. My guest today, William Guy, another metal member, a proud metal member, is founder and chairman emeritus of Cornerstone International Group and CEO of his local company, Cornerstone Leadership Solutions. Now, William served um, as a consultant to boards of directors and senior management of some of the world's largest organisations, both in the, both in the public and the private sector. And uh, this senior level consulting includes evaluations of chairpersons, presidents, managing directors and other top management in virtually every industry. We might find out how that works because if um, a company calls you in and says, hey, let's evaluate all our top people, you'd be tempted to go back and say, oh, shit, they're all really good, wouldn't you? Um, anyway, we'll talk to Bill about that. Uh, previously, William served as a senior partner of Ward Howell International Group, which is now Hydrogen Struggles, and earlier as senior associate of Corn Ferry and Associates, which is an unbelievable firm worldwide, and both absolute leaders in the field of um, executive search. One thing I... I said a million times on this program that um, I really admire about business people uh, are people that are giving back to the community and William's an active philanthropist serving three terms as president of Outreach Love which is an international charity for underprivileged homeless and mentally challenged children and he's also the proud recipient of the prestigious Silver Beaver Award for Outstanding Service to Youth and the Community so that's a great thing He's also written many articles, books, and guest columns on the subject of career planning and organizational leadership. His new book series, which we'll get into, is entitled Getting a Job You Love, which is available on Amazon or directly via his publishing company website, which is globalleadershippublishing.com. Hi, William. How are you? Great. How are you, Bob? I'm good. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Network. Now, if I'm if I'm looking for executive staff, what's the advantage of using a headhunter? What a dreadful word headhunter is! But what's the advantage of using a headhunter like yourself? Why wouldn't I just go and use LinkedIn, for example? Well, LinkedIn is a very valuable tool for knowing the backgrounds of people. But the my experience over four decades is that the person you want is not looking. They usually already have a better job with a better company. Mm. That doesn't mean you can't recruit them, but they're the ones that don't answer the ads, that aren't on the job boards, and when you call them, they'll say, hey, I'm happy where I am. That right. doesn't mean you can't get them to the to the table, but they're not uh, they're not easy to get to the table. Okay. That, that must just be at a certain level, though, surely. Uh, no, I think that's pretty true at, at all levels. A-pluses uh, are almost always in great jobs. They've already been promoted or recruited into good jobs with good companies. Right. Um, now recruiting, of course, is just one service that you provide. So what other services would we go to um, William Guy for? Well, you would go to Cornerstone, which is the firm I founded, right. for the best best of breed in 
any area of uh, human resources. <clears throat> For instance, um, uh, Wharton did a study and found that 40% of new hires, particularly in management levels, failed in their first 18 months. Um, they wow. dusted off some old, old concepts you and I would call uh, orientation, threw in a few new bells and whistles and put this new term onboarding, not waterboarding, <laughs> onboarding. Yeah. And the, fe- the fellow that wrote the book, George Bratt, runs my onboarding division. Likewise, for executive coaching, we've got the best of breed. For um, outplacement, we have the best of breed. So we've been very slow and careful to, to try to recruit the very top people in each of the HR fields. So we're not a me too. Uh, everybody says they're the best. These guys were already, and gals were already the best. We just were lucky enough to get them to Cornerstone. So when you, um, when you recruit somebody for a company, um, obviously they give you a brief. How do you, do you then go through any training or whatever with that person to make sure that they are the right? I mean, how do you qualify that they're really the right person? Because, you know, resumes can be, you know, more imaginative than almost anything else I've discovered. Yes, there's a lot of imagination. Uh, what was it? The president of Harvard um, falsified her resume. I mean, yeah. Everybody seems to as it is. Um, let's differentiate between placement firms and retained search firms. Placement firms call themselves headhunters, so it's very confusing. Headhunter, headhunter. True headhunters are retained executive search, and we're not recruiters. We're evaluators. So we, we use uh, psychometrics. We use all kinds of tools to evaluate not only the person, but the match. Right. So does that does that mean that um, the first thing that comes to mind my mind with that is that you're actually um, recruiting square people to fit in square holes. Um, you, you're finding people that actually, you know, are the perfect fit for a certain company. And surely the most important thing today is you know, to get disruptive characters in there, people that, you know, don't fit the mold, that, you know, aren't the yes-men of yesterday. Well, that's very, very wise. Unfortunately, most companies think they're unique or their industry is unique, and they tend to clone themselves. And recruiters uh, just bend over and, and give them what they want, not what they need. Right. Uh, if you, as a consultant, it's our role to try our best to uh, influence our clients to do what's best for them, not what we we want best for us, but what they really need. And sometimes they listen, sometimes they don't. The best clients do listen, and um, if if they want three people who are exactly from their industry, and there's a fourth person that I know is better than the best three from their industry, I, I can throw that fourth one in. If I gave them three <clears throat> that are off the specification, they'd probably fire me. It doesn't right. matter because I'm already retained, but I would, they wouldn't use me again. So. Um, it's very unusual to be able to um, get them to deviate totally from their sake. PepsiCo was a good example. When PepsiCo owned the three fast food uh, chains, Taco Bell, Pizza yep. Hut, and Kentucky Fried Chicken, uh, they got very creative. They said, look, give us the A-plus people from other industries, other not fast food, not even hospitality, yep. even right. manufacturing. Right. Uh, because within six months, those A-plus people were outperforming the A-plus people from fast food. I don't Lovely. mean to knock fast food, but their best wasn't as good as the best from other industries. But that was one out of, I don't know how many, hundreds or thousands of clients we've had. 
almost all of them want exactly to clone themselves. So somebody calls you and says, hi, I'm, I'm XYZ, and you say, oh, that's a Fortune 500 company or whatever. Um, we want to recruit somebody for our C-suite. Uh, do you go in there... How, how do you start? Do you go in there and interview with them and have a look at what the job entails, or do you take their word for what the job entails? No, we, we have to get in there because we're marriage makers, not wedding makers. And to make the employment marriage, there's no perfect match, but to make an excellent sure. match um, requires really getting to know them quickly and accurately because you can have an A-plus person and an A-plus company, but the match may not be an A-plus. Their values, their style um, are different. Right. So, the um, what sort of companies are the? Is there is there a particular industry or a particular style of company that would engage somebody like yourself? It's not the size so much as it is the sophistication. You can have a, a brand new company that's quite sophisticated and, under, and appreciates the the importance and value of the our evaluative process. For instance, um, Apple hired us when they only had five employees. That's not a very big company. Okay, now, uh, I think we should have taken... You should have taken stock. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know. My friends who did Google are all wealthy because they got a third of stock in stock. Yeah. We normally get a third of first-year compensation, but it was cash, and when they hired, uh, think Cisco, barely out of the garage. We brought in mortgage, we brought in chambers. Um, Right. Well, they didn't have the money to afford chambers, so they gave them a ton of stock. And we were stupid. We just got a third of cash, which was zip. And we made plenty of money over the years. But right. my friends that did Google took a third of cash, which was basically zero uh, in cash, and then um, took a third of warrants or stock in warrants and stocks. So the recruiters are all quite wealthy. Thank you. <laughs> That's good. Um, so why would I... Am I right in saying that it's usually established companies that hire you that, that like startups wouldn't wouldn't go to somebody like you? They're they're looking for that quirky, zany character around the corner? Well the startups can't afford our fees. Right. So unless the search firm's willing to work on an equity basis, which I am personally, by the way. Right. Um and the reason why I, I do that, uh, even though very few will become a Google or Apple or a Cisco uh, I have, happen to have a mentoring personality, so I enjoy helping the entrepreneurs avoid hiring mistakes and HR right. mistakes. Uh, but what I do for them is I build them a if they can't the people they want they can't afford, but I can get those same people on an advisory board, right. so they get basically for free uh, or nearly free, uh, depending on how they reward them. But it can be free. Uh, some heavy hitters, uh, shockingly or surprisingly heavy hitters, on an advisory board. Right. And um, then how, how would you get remunerated in the same way by somebody like that, or would you take stock in that situation? No, I, I have to take stock. They don't have the cash to afford my fees. Right. Okay. So what, talking about fees, what does it cost to to get somebody like you to – is it dependent on the um, the salary being paid or the total of the benefits being paid, or is it a sort of a flat fee irrespective of um, – what the role is? Well, it can be either a floating fee or a fixed fee. Usually it's floating. Usually it's one-third of um, annual first-year annual compensation. Uh, for instance, when we put in Scully at, uh, many years later uh, at Apple, <clears throat> in today's dollars he was paid $3 million. We get a third of that. 
So you, you might ask yourself, why would they pay that much money to us? Because it's so critically important they have the right person at the top. The, the higher you go in the organization, the more uh, you can set the company back. Or for a small company, it doesn't matter. But for a larger company, unless it's an Enron. Well, look at Enron. There were some really good people at Enron, but the top people were the wrong people, and it doesn't make this anymore. Yeah. So the, the top people can make a big difference. And so it's worth that as insurance to make sure you have the right person. Yeah, I, I'm thinking about um, my friend Jeff Hazlett, who um, Jeff was um, the CMO of um, Kodak, and he fought with the board. It's very well documented. He fought with the board for ages to try and convince them that they weren't in the um, in the film business. They were actually in the memories business or whatever it was, but that film was dying and they needed to go digital. And, of course, they stuck to the guns and they said, no, we're in the film business. We've been in the film business forever. So in that case, if they came to you and asked you to replace Jeff Hazlett, for example... Um, they would probably get a person who believed in film, which means they probably would have gone broke quicker. Uh, probably. <laughs> now yeah. we we don't we have the luxury of of saying no. Um, yeah. Although I think most search people have a uh, a sales mentality. So yeah, I can do it. I can do it. And then they they watch out what you wish for. But uh, some of us are a little more careful. Particularly I am because I guarantee my work. Yeah, and that's a, that's unique. That's unusual for retained search. Contingency firms guarantee their work for a year. Retained, there's no accountability. When I first got into search, I didn't feel that was the highest level of professionalism. So I started guaranteeing my work in writing. Yeah. Um, now that doesn't mean that it, the company. I'm guaranteeing that the company will survive, but I'm guaranteeing that it's the right person for what they want. Right. And hopefully yeah. what they need. Because it's not your if if they give you the wrong brief, it's not your it's not your responsibility as long as you meet that brief, right? Well, as long as I do my best to to uh, influence the brief. Now, if the brief is really um way off, I'll, I'll just turn down the assignment. Right. Now, if somebody asks you for a somebody for a board position, now or senior management position, but let's say for a board position. And, you know, a good board's usually one that's pretty well balanced, so they know what sort of disciplines they need from that board member. Um, what are the other qualities in a person that um, most companies want for their board? Uh, you're saying want or need, because they usually want clout. They usually yep. want a CEO from a Fortune 500 company. They want period. clout, yep. Okay, so they yeah. want clout. What do they need? Well, it's not that they don't want these things, but they don't really, uh, they, they don't walk the walk. They talk the talk. But they don't, what I look for, uh, regardless of what the talk is, is um, a high level of ethics, for sure. Right. Um, street smarts. A lot of times they'll recruit people from academia that are very smart, very educated, sure. but they don't have street smarts. Yep. I look for... Um, People who are good listeners, because board members are, are really advisors to the CEO. They're they're, they're sure. they have a dual role: advising and judging, yes, <laughs> and monitoring. Yeah. Uh, so they've got to be a good listener to do either mentoring or or monitoring. And right. I would also add diversity, and I don't mean just um, uh, gender and ethnicity. Uh, I I like to see some diversity on the board. Uh, I'll give you a good example. Uh, John Chambers 
has told his board he will not go on any more boards because they're too time-consuming. But in the same breath, he's encouraged his C-level folks to go on to a board. And if it's the right board, they can bring good ideas back to Cisco. Yeah. So um, the diversity would be non-ITP, non-high-tech firms, to bring borrowed wisdom from other industries. And I like to do that for my clients. Yeah, that's that's critical. You know, when you know, I'm a I'm a marketer by training, although I don't um, seems to take up less and less of my time these days. But um, um, one of the important things is to take the best of breed of all industries and then apply them to your industry because um, the only thing that's different is what we're selling at the end. The mechanism to get to that is the same no matter what the business is. Um, it seems to me, okay, let me ask you this question first. Why aren't there more women on board? So why don't you guys put more women on boards? Is it just that there's not as many women candidates out there? Or is it just that uh, businesses are so male-phobic that um, recommending a woman just doesn't get past first base? Well, I, I think it's parts of the latter. Uh, most boards are filled with friends of existing board members, and they're usually their, their male buddies that are, are playing golf with them or went to school with them, but it, it, the networking tends to be yeah. the uh, old boy network. Um, what's interesting is the stats show that uh, American companies that have uh, at least one female board member are outperforming the companies that have none. Yep. And that's true in Europe so much that... Um, I believe the it, yeah. The country of Norway has said if you don't have 40% of your board female, you will lose your corporate status. That's pretty strong law. Why would they do that? Because it does make a difference. We're all equal, but we're not the same. And to understand the um, marketplace and the workplace, uh, it's nice to have that female view of things because it is different. It is different. And... um and men have managed to do such a fantastic job of screwing up governments and screwing up corporations that <laughs> um, it's time for a change. But um, yeah. it, it, it does seem to be extremely difficult, particularly in chauvinistic societies like the United States and Australia even more so, where um, you know women are given a lot of lip service but are actually treated like second-class citizens in many cases. Well, what's interesting, Bob, is that more than half the board searches that I conduct require or prefer a female or an ethnic minority for the wrong reasons. They want to look good. They want to skirt in the picture. They want um, a Spanish surname or an Asian surname on the masthead. Yeah. Um, and so I've had to interview some of those that are already on boards that really don't belong on boards. They're there only because of their gender or ethnicity. And that's a shame. Back to your earlier question, Yes, there aren't that many Fortune 500 CEOs that are female. And on the other hand, there aren't very many uh, Fortune 500 CEOs who are um, ethnic minorities. And so, uh, obviously, if, if they want somebody at that level, they're going to run out because those people are already on too many boards. Um, it, and so you reach down, reach down, reach down, or reach out to people that really are not qualified. Is that a, a generational thing? I mean, is it... Is it the same at the 60-plus level as it is at the 30- to 45-year level? Is uh, it no, still... I think the, 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 unfortunately, the boards tend to be gray hair, yeah. unless it's um, high-tech industry. 
and they are old school. They tend to consciously or uh, unconsciously uh, favor a male or reach out to their male friend. Whereas I think you're correct in asking the question. I think the younger generation is far more um, open-minded and appreciative. Yeah, that's a bit. It it, it always reminds me of the um, 450 or so grey-haired men who think that they can tell women what they can do with their bodies. That's one thing that pisses me off no end, and uh, I think it carry it carries through to the workplace. Um, it seems to me though that getting a dream job at all levels. Um, is as much about who you know and being in the right place at the right time as it does about your skill set. Do you think that's true? It seems to me that if you look at the Fortune 500s, the same people sort of go round and round and round and they all know each other and they all sit on boards with each other and it's like a, a revolving door. You get thrown out of one company and five minutes later you're the CEO of the next one. Is that true? Well, certainly there's a tremendous amount of... Um of fraternalism or even nepotism, but what what is um, refreshing <clears throat> is that um, thanks to Starving Doxley, their friends are saying no, so it forces them to look outside the box. Yeah. And if, if the search firm has some backbone, maybe they can can uh, uh, change that vector a little bit because it gets really wide later on. Your new book. Let's do some flogging for you here. Your new book's called Getting a Job You Love During a Tough Economy. Now, what does that book tell me that I really shouldn't already know after speaking with my college counsellors or my peers or whatever? What are you going to tell me in this book that um, I don't already or shouldn't already know? Well, there are about three shelves of books at Barnes & Noble on career planning and job hunting and how to write a resume and how to interview and so forth. Yep. And they're probably at least 85% accurate. <clears throat> Having built the largest uh, head-end firm in the world, we can handle virtually all geography, all industries, all functions, and some of our offices, uh, the, uh, the, the principals own contingency, so all levels. Pretty good reality check. Right. And <clears throat> I would say that probably 10 to 15 percent of the advice in all those books is either obsolete or never was accurate. So I, I kind of had to write the book. Uh, the reason why the title says getting a job you love, not just getting a job, <clears throat> is that probably about 2 percent of the workforce around the world, blue collar or uh, white collar, love their work. And they yeah, didn't I do agree. anything different. They're just luckier. Um, another 18 percent probably like their work. That means 80 percent don't even like their work. Yep, because the process, <clears throat> the hiring process is broken. <clears throat> I, I know it's broken because <laughs> I'm an expert at it. I'm, I'm considered a, a top expert witness in the court of law on the hiring process. So I can say with authority what I do, what you do, what we all do is broken because right. it, it does not show you the day-to-day personality or day-to-day style. So you interview the pretty face, if you will, the handsome face and the great personality, not the bright one. Yeah. Is it, are you really looking for the bright ones, or are you looking for somebody who um, is the right um, personality mix? Um, you know, I, I know it's great to have somebody 
in your team that's a bit disruptive, a bit out there that, that challenges the norms and continually calls everybody to account. I'm working with a company in um, South America and we've got one of those and it's, it's really, it's really brilliant. Um, but how much is, People don't like those people, do they? People would rather have somebody whose personality fits in perfectly and they'll not rock the boat and they'll go to the pub with the boys on Friday night. And Isn't that the, is that the job that people want to hire people for? Well, Bob, there's a fine line between being provocative and being provoking. Nobody wants the provoking. And I, I would argue that that's disruptive. Right. Um, a provocative person who has a ton of diplomacy, <clears throat> can influence people, particularly if they have patience uh, and persistence. They can influence for the good. Right. And so uh, you, you don't want to be disruptive within a company to the point that it's destructive. That would be the provoke, provoking. Right. But if you have somebody who has similar values, not necessarily the same, but similar values, similar work style, uh, again, not cloning them, but somebody who will blend in but still has the mission to be a, an agent for good, they can actually, the power of one, they can actually influence over time um, the organization. You know, maybe if uh, Hazlitt had stayed with Kodak uh, a little longer, maybe he could have influenced them a little more. I don't know. There's no guarantee he could have. But um, I would argue that the right person is not somebody who's, totally disruptive to the company. Yes, you, you want your product to be disruptive, but you don't want to be too disruptive within the company or they'll fire you or they won't listen to you after your first remarks. Yeah. Um, so what else am I going to get out of the book? Because, you know, I often, well, I, I often look at my books and I sit there and I think, Jesus, you know, I've, I've written five books on marketing. They've all done very, very well, mainly because they've all got covers that we spent more money, I think, testing covers in um, in bookstores than we did actually <laughs> doing anything else. And uh, right. so we got we've got great sales on all the books. But when I sit there and I look at a book, you know, the the bookshelves at um, at Barnes and Noble, for example, there's 50 million buddy marketing books. And is mine very much different? Um, probably not. Is it different at all? Mm, maybe a little bit because I'm a little bit edgy, but. Um, Where's your book markedly different than what's out there on the shelves? Okay. Well, first of all, I have a passion for the employment marriage. I'd like to see a lot more people like their work or love their work. And I've been making good employment marriages for four decades. I know you can do right. it. Now, some of that's art. Some of it's science. I can't teach the art, but the book includes the science, if you will. Mm-hmm. And the, the books that are out there are written by HR folks who are telling you what they'd like to receive. And because they have the power of authorship, they make their opinions into rules. For instance, I think we've all heard or read, you must keep your resume to two pages. Some say one page. That is not a a law or a rule. It's a myth. But if you look at the back of the book, and the former head of HR from Procter & Gamble, and you're going to listen to him. Yeah, you take it as gospel. I'm a marketing guy. I'm not an HR guy. Yeah. And so I'm telling people what works, not what I like to receive. Yeah. And the analogy would be um, all the authors think the world is flat, and I'm Columbus. I know the world is round. Right. You, so basics are the same. You still build the ship the same way, hire the crew the same way, provision the ship the same way, but your navigation's a lot different if you know the world is round. So yeah. what I've and done it, is I've 
removed. And you're not going to fall off the edge either. <laughs> well, hopefully not. And, and no, no uh, dragons either. No uh, sea monsters either. Yeah. Uh, but seriously, the the book eliminates that which I think is erroneous advice. The basics are the same, and mine are the, that part. Eighty-five percent is is pretty much me too. But the yeah. extra fifteen percent is is totally different, and that's why I, I wrote the book was because it needed to be said. Yeah. I need to remove the bad advice and add some good advice that wasn't there. Are you teaching any classes or giving workshops on career planning and do's and don'ts or getting a a job you love? Are you giving yeah, workshops I, and I, things? Well, first of all, I my uh, Philanthropy tends to be youth-centric, so for 40 years I've lectured at college universities all over the world. Right now I'm teaching two college classes, so you can call me professor if you'd like. Anyway, I'm teaching <laughs> two college classes at uh, Cal Lutheran in Thousand Oaks uh, right. currently. I'm also giving uh, seminars in March and April of this year, and I'm uh, doing a keynote at UCLA in July. Good. Um, do you do you go out and give speeches generally at do you have a, an agency that represents you or bureau that represents you? Well, I'm looking for a good speaker's bureau. I have friends that belong to speaker's bureaus and never get the call. Uh, and first they blame it on the speaker's bureau. Maybe they who don't deserve to be sent out. But I've always had standing room only, and I've always yeah. been invited back, and I've always gotten two or three side invitations. So I'm, I'm obviously not drooling during my, my presentation. Yeah. But I think I'm delivering. So... I am looking for a very effective speakers bureau. Yeah, there's a few. Of, there's a few of them around. Not many, I must admit. Um, you know, I've given about eighteen hundred speeches or something like that, and finding a good bureau is very difficult. But I'll, I'll keep my eye open for you, and I'll recommend to you a couple that I think are good. William Guy, thank you for taking the time to be on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. It was good to talk to you, and uh, I will see you at Metal shortly. Uh, how does um, if if I, if I'm a corporation, I'm looking for just the right employee, or I'm looking for a board member, or, or I'm somebody who's looking for that right job. How's the best way to contact you? Well, by um, certainly by phone or by email. Email is it's terrific because um, if I have my phone off, it's still reminding me <laughs> what the message was. Okay, what's the, what's the email address? Uh, it's my name, all one word, Bill Guy, B as in boy, I-L-L-G-U-Y, at cornerstoneintel.com. That's C-O-R-N-E-R-S-T-O-N-E, I, N as in Nancy, T as in Tom, L as in Larry, obviously short for international. So cornerstoneintel is all one word, dot com. Thanks very much. And don't forget, keep your eye open for getting a job you love during the tough economy. You can get that from... Global leadership Amazon. from Amazon. That's easier. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, this is Bob Pritchard. You're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business. And I'll be back with you in just a couple of minutes. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network you are listening to the bob pritchard radio show to connect with bob please send an email to bob at bob 
That's Bob at BobPritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking No Bullshit Business Show for 2015. Coming to you this week from my hometown of Los Angeles. This is normally the segment of the show we bring you emails from our listeners all over the world, but today, because this show is all about entrepreneurs, I want to tell a couple of stories of entrepreneurs who became hugely successful despite adversity. You know, if you're going out to be an entrepreneur, you're going to run into brick walls everywhere. The key is to find your way around those brick walls um, and be able to pivot if necessary. So these stories give you an idea of the type of adversity that uh, entrepreneurs face. Now, at the age of 34, Parker Conrad's life had been so filled with highs and lows, you know, you could make it into a movie. As the co-founder and CEO of Zenefits, today he's a Silicon Valley golden-haired boy, a big success story. Now, Zenefits could be the fastest-growing cloud company ever, launched in May 2013, and by the end of 2014, Zenefits was at just over $20 million in run-rate revenue, and the goal for this year is $100 million. So... San Francisco-based Zenefits is on fire because it offers an easy-to-use free cloud service for all the human resourcing functions that companies need, and this service is free. And Zenefits makes it money from providing benefits such as selling health insurance or offering health insurance. So Zenefits is the insurance breaker and taking a broker's fee, but even if you don't buy insurance you can still use the rest of the services at no cost. So Zenefits has got the insurance industry in an uproar. It even got temporarily banned in the state of Utah after insurance brokers lobbied the Department of Insurance. But his life wasn't always as wonderful as it is today. Two years ago, the day he incorporated Zenefits, Conrad had just been fired from his previous startup that he co-founded. His college friend, some friend, and co-founder kicked him out. But this was just the the last, really, in a host of issues that befell him. In high school, his grades were mediocre, to say the best. And uh, so then he entered the... um, Intel talent search where he spent two years doing research on neuroscience and ended up coming in third place. This helped him get into Harvard, so the boy is not stupid, where he joined the college newspaper, The Crimson, where he spent all his time doing that. He loved it and he didn't go to class for a year. So not surprisingly, he had to leave Harvard. Another incredibly humiliating and shocking experience for him. He returned a year later. He graduated and got a great job at the biotech firm Amgen. Shortly after that, he got and eventually recovered from testicular cancer. So this boy's not having much luck. So he's getting frustrated with the slow pace of advancement at Amgen when his old college roommate called with an idea of starting a wiki for stock research. So he left Amgen, moved to San Francisco, and they set up the company. With no job and no money and nowhere to live, they moved into an old folks' home in Walnut Creek. So he's 
co-founder's grandparents had an apartment they weren't using, so they lived there for free. The only trick was that no one under 65 is allowed to live there, so they had to sneak in and out for the whole time they were there. They reckon it was the worst period of their lives. So from having a great, even if a bit frustrating life at Amgen, living in Santa Monica, he's now living in an old folks' home, trying to do God knows what to go do God knows where, um, not having any money or any idea what they were doing. So being broke and stressed out at this startup, which they called Wickinvest, they were constantly on the verge of not being able to pay their bills. So they had to pivot two or three times, and then the partner's family stuck in a whole bunch of money, and they stopped getting along. He stayed around for about a year, cleaning up stuff, which he said was incredibly unpleasant. So he started, and he got fired. So he started Xenophits, and emotionally he was at the absolute rock bottom. He'd been fired, been left in disgrace, so the day he left, he incorporated Zenefits and launched the company on a shoestring. Fortunately, his wife had a job, so they could live on her salary while he tried to struggle through with this company. Now, as a former cancer survivor, he was very vigilant about health insurance, and people always asked him for advice because he knew a fair bit about it. So... He found that there's a lot of administrative work with, that comes with having employees. So if it was, he thought that if it's all connected and integrated, it could run on its own. So he taught himself to code. He was then accepted into the Y Combinator program in 2012. In less than a year, he'd proven the model. By year two, it grew its user base 1,600% and opened up more than 2,000 companies across 47 states, serving over 15,000 employees. And the company's now valued at a billion dollars. Yeah. So adversity, 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 success. So what did Conrad learn from all this? Well, the main thing he learned was that failure sucks and you never want to do it. So I don't know, Conrad, but I know that I really like the guy. <laughs> so if you're a regular listener to the show, and are benefiting from the advice that my friends and I give you each week, please tell your friends to listen. Go to my website at bobpritchard.com and subscribe to my monthly newsletter. Send in your questions. Email me at bob at bobpritchard.com and follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and become a contact of mine on LinkedIn. I love LinkedIn. I use it incessantly. We're confident this is going to be an absolutely fantastic year for everyone in business, and it's the perfect time to commence your entrepreneurial endeavours. Thanks for listening to the Bob Pritchard No Bullshit Business Radio Show for Entrepreneurs. And remember, it's much easier to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. This is Bob Pritchard, and I hope you have a fantastic week. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.